annoy your family by shouting the answers while watching Jeopardy? Do you drive people crazy when you start a sentence with, well, actually? Well, guess what? You can go fact yourself. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Go Fact Yourself, the show where we take the smartest people we know and make them look dumb. And then, smart again. I'm Helen Hong. And now, socially distancing from our homes in Los Angeles, here's our moderator, J. Keith Van Stratton. Thank you, Helen. Great to see you again. Hello. Hello. We have a lot of updates since the last time we recorded. This is our first recording we've done since the Max Fund Drive. So first of all, I want to thank everybody who supported us in the Max Fund Drive. I hope you are enjoying your perks or will enjoy them when you receive them. Our stretch goal was that if we reached a certain threshold, we would record a special mini episode with listeners as the guest. Unfortunately, we did not meet that stretch goal, so we're not going to do that this year, but it gave me some great ideas for how to do that on a more approachable level next year, and I'm very excited for that, and we thank you all for your interest and support. The good news is, though, because of the contributions of our listeners, I was able to make a donation in your honor to Hollywood Food Coalition of nearly $350. So thank you so much. That's going to provide a lot of fresh, hot meals for our unhoused community here in Los Angeles. Also, I wanted to let you know what we're doing with some of the uh, new contributions that came in. Hopefully, I am sounding better than I have in past podcasts because I have been upgrading our sound experience. Uh, I know we get some... uh some, let's say, constructive feedback from our listeners that sometimes my sound, I believe, sounds like I'm in a submarine or something like that. I got uh, some new soundproofing thing. I actually consulted the guru himself, Justin McElroy, about what microphone to buy. The microphone that I bought, I could not figure out how to attach to my computer, but it's progress. I do have the microphone <laughs> over there. So if if it sounds better, it's probably because of that. But you can look forward or listen forward to those things happening in the near future. Helen, I understand you also have uh, an update going on in your world. Yeah, I have a new baby at home. Oh my goodness. Maybe we should have started with that. <laughs> yeah, my sister, I think I've discussed on the show that my sister yeah. slash roommate was having a baby and now we've had the baby and we have, a th- as of recording time, a three-week-old baby. And wow. he is adorable and sweet and doesn't sleep enough. I mean, I oh, wish. Gosh. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a little yeah. tired, but yeah. really great. Everyone is healthy. Everyone is in good shape. Everyone has healthy lungs. <laughs> <laughs> and as and as the sister of the mother with the baby, where are you registered, Helen, if people want to send you gifts? I am registered either at BevMo or at <laughs> Ease.com where you can send me weed. You know what? They really should have a registry at ease. We'll, we'll see if we can look into <laughs> they that. They really should. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations, and that's wonderful news, uh, and we're happy that everybody is uh, healthy and well. Thank you. Today on Go Fact Yourself, two guests will compete to answer questions about facts they know, facts they might not know, and, frankly, facts they should know. Plus, we'll meet actual experts on two very different topics, and finally, we'll declare one of our guests the winner of today's show. Let's get started and meet today's guest, Helen, who was up first. He is an Emmy-winning CBS Sunday Morning correspondent, New York Times contributor, author, and host of Nova on PBS. It's David Pogue. Hello, David Pogue. Hello. (laughs) David wooing wooing his own appearance. (laughs) (laughs) Want to come up and have a drink? Oh. See, I'm wooing. Oh, that kind of woo. You're pitching woo as well. David, so happy to have you here. People, of course, know you for covering technology and science for a long time. I was interested to learn that you had a background in musical theater, of all things. Tell us about your experience there. 
Yeah, that's that's actually my main love. I was, oh, yeah? Uh, since I was little, I was writing musicals. I was a, a music major in college. What? I graduated with distinction in music. I went to Broadway, became a conductor and an arranger and a keyboard player for Broadway shows. What? Y- yeah, man. That's you're, my real But you're dude. the science guy. <laughs> that's just a sideline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just a side hustle where you've written over 100 books. Yeah. <laughs> Well, musicians don't earn money. That's the ah, point. there it is. So yeah, I, I uh, my my goal was to write musicals. Actually, was, was to become the next big composer. Mm-hmm. It took me ten years to realize that they they don't invest twenty million dollars in a nobody who has no track record. It was mm. during the eighties and nineties when I was there. It was all Sondheim and Andrew Lloyd Webber and the old guard, which is you know well deserved, but mm-hmm. it, it was not easy to break in. Uh, well, David, you have written over 100 books. You specialized in things about tech and trying to get people to understand the devices that they already own. You had this great book series called The Missing Manual. Why did manuals go missing? I remember getting devices and they had a book that was sometimes larger than the piece of equipment you were buying. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually probably the world's expert on answering that question. Um, they got rid of manuals because when you are a software company and your coders are rapidly racing to finish the software in order to ship it by May 1st, the last thing they can do is wait another six weeks Ah. for the documentation, which can't be finished until the software is, is then proofread, bound, shipped, packaged, and all that. So, and also it's it's a dollar a book. So if they could get people to train people to use the online help, then they save a lot of money on the actual paper. But some of the online ones aren't very helpful also. What, what, what's the key to, to writing good tech instructions and why can't the company seem to do it themselves? I'm not trying to get you out of a job. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just curious about how we got here. I had a fascinating experience when I was writing. I spent 13 years writing the tech column for the Times. And at one point I was griping about this very topic, how bad manuals were. And I got an email, believe it or not, from Seoul, Korea, from this guy who led the documentation team for all of Samsung. I mean, computers, washers, dryers, microwaves, everything they make. And he explained to me that the way they write manuals is like this. The Korean engineers write the first draft. Oh, okay, there's the first problem. You can stop right there, there. that's already, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. This draft is shipped off to London translated into English by a translation company that's never seen the product. So it's it's a disaster. And the guy and six team members flew to Connecticut for me to give them some suggestions on how they might improve this, this process. I'll never forget it. Then what was your what was the key suggestion that you hoped that they uh, took away from that? My suggestion was to hire American technology writers, documentation writers, and there are many, and there are, of course, associations <laughs> of these things, and embed them in Seoul for a summer with the engineers as the product develops, writing the documentation concurrently in English as a normal consumer and publish it Oh man, and you know what? Samsung I, owes you money at this point. <laughs> <laughs> they owe you well, a I'm, I'm told that they did because about a year later, I got this, with, with no cover note, I got this giant package in FedEx of something like 17 manuals in English <laughs> for Samsung products. And I, I assume it's because they were saying, look, we did what you said. <laughs> they couldn't send you the products, though. They just sent you the, the, the manuals. <laughs> Glass, no. Yeah. 
Let's talk about your latest book. It is called How to Prepare for Climate Change, A Practical Guide to Surviving the Chaos. I was looking through the table of contents. Here's some of the consecutive chapter titles. Preparing for Flood, Preparing for Heat Waves, Preparing for Drought, Preparing for Hurricanes and Tornadoes, Preparing for Wildfires, Preparing for Mosquitoes and Ticks, and Preparing for Social Breakdown. <laughs> So I'm guessing, this, I'm guessing this is the feel-good summer beach read that we've all been looking forward to. If you can believe it, this has been called the first uplifting book about climate change. <laughs> uh, now, it was called that by my editor, but oh, okay. still, but still it works. the whole idea is that depression is not just feeling like your situation sucks. It's feeling like your situation sucks and you're helpless to change it. Mm. So by taking steps now to make yourself more resilient, for the disasters to come, you do sleep better at night. You do feel better. And you do, to be fair, end the book with the last chapter title, Where to Find Hope. So uh, wh where can people find hope in this climate change uh, disaster that is upon us? Well, there's a lot of it right now. Actually, yeah. I wrote this book during the Trump years when, of course, there was zero action on, on climate change by the government. Now we have a president who cares deeply and has surrounded himself by the world's best climate scientists and is spending trillions of dollars to address the problem equitably, we hope. And, and secondly, corporations, which used to be the biggest polluters, well, actually still are, but they, they have become more aware that not just their customers, but their investors and their employees all care a lot mm. about how much they're contributing to the problem. And they are in large part turning around and cleaning up their act, if nothing else, then to look better. Mm. Uh, speaking of scientists, you have a new science podcast that is coming up. Tell us about that. I do. It's uh, coming out of uh, Viacom and CBS News and Simon & Schuster. It's called Unsung Science with David Pogue. And each episode takes some uh, triumphant achievement in science and goes back to the backstory, introduces the people who made it happen, the challenges, the triumphs. Um, I managed to get a hold of the, the two scientists who invented the mRNA vaccine wow. years before the COVID. Um, they, everybody wants a piece of them. They say they're going to win the Nobel Prize. So it was quite a feat to get them on board, but they did. And, you know, I want to talk about how the SpaceX rockets are able to land on their tails. Cool, successful projects rewind to how they came about. I love that kind of digging deeper into the history of scientific achievement because a lot of the time it's the women and the people of color who have just been sort of like locked out of the history, you know, and now we're starting to, to learn like, you know, oh, it was women and people of color were like right there at the forefront of, of all these amazing contributions. Oh, you, you have no idea. The, the, the mRNA vaccine that saved the world was developed by a Hungarian scientist, a woman nice. named Katalin Kariko. And she started in the 90s with this idea that we could reprogram our own natural RNA cells to fight disease and make vaccines. And everybody thought it was the stupidest idea. She could <laughs> not get a grant. Wow. In her talks, she has a slide showing all these rejection letters for grant after grant after grant. And eventually, University of Pennsylvania demoted her. <gasps> took her off the professor track mm. because the idea was so stupid and she wouldn't let it go. So in 2005, she solved the scientific problem. Nobody read the paper except for two guys. Ready? One was the founder of Moderna. The <gasps> other was the founder of BioNTech, what? the Pfizer vaccine. What? Yep. How yep. do you say suck on that in Hungarian? <laughs> <laughs> One of many questions that will possibly be answered later in the show. We're so happy that we have you joining us, Mr. David Pogue. Thank you.
Helen, against whom will David be competing? She is an Emmy-winning CBS Sunday Morning contributor, actor, comedian, and host of the podcast, The Giles Files. It's Nancy Giles! Hi, Nancy Giles! Hello! It's so wonderful to have you. David is applauding, and uh, David might be applauding his own efforts because it was on his recommendation that we have you here today. I know. That was really lovely. He was calling me from an airport, just sounding so continental <laughs> and so, so, so busy. Nancy, there's this podcast and blah, blah, blah. Would you like to compete in both trivia? And I was like, yeah, that sounds like fun. So here I am. Well, I was, just, I was just, this is David. I would just like to add to Nancy's bio. The reason I thought she'd be fantastic is because um, this way I can't lose because if I win, great. If Nancy wins, it's also great because not included in her bio is the fact that Nancy is just the most wonderful person. And so if she wins, better for all of us. Wow. Yeah. I, that's really, really sweet, David. Yeah, I cut that line out of my bio. I, just, <laughs> I, can't, I can't say that. Yeah. Um, another thing that I forgot to tell you guys, though, is, and, and I think David knows this, is I, I do a lot of voiceovers. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, I've done voiceovers for pharmaceuticals to the extent that sometimes, well, I was at a graduation party for a neighbor, and she was like, well, I, she called her friends and she said, here's the lady who does Boniva. Do the Boniva. So I did it on the phone for her. <laughs> Yeah, Boniva is the postmenopausal osteoporosis medicine. Would you like to hear a sample? Uh, Can we? Of course, yes. Okay, this is one of the taglines. Don't take Boniva and tell your doctor if you have difficult or painful swallowing, chest pains, or severe continuing heartburn, as these may be signs of serious upper digestive problems. Whoa. Nancy Giles. That was legit. It was legit. I smell Emmy. Yes. Well, speaking of Emmy, uh, you got one for your work on CBS Sunday Morning. You're known for your essays on yes. that show, which really range from very silly to very, very serious. I'm curious which ones tend to get the most responses, you know, the ones about the receipts being too long or the ones about racial injustice? Well, it's funny. Uh Pretty much the ones about racial injustice, they'll get, they'll run the gamut. I mean, I, I do commentaries and I do interviews mm-hmm. now too, but the ones, the, the most recent commentary that I did on the issue of Karen's mm-hmm. brought up a lot of uh, emotional response from, from Karen's? people. And years ago. Yeah, was, it, was it from Karen's? It's always the Karen's oh, yeah. who are going to well, send some, the email. <laughs> Of course, and I have friends named Karen who didn't, they didn't bother going through social media. They were just like texting me going, what are you doing to us? And uh, and Nancy, how many of them asked to speak with your manager? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I told the Karens, those good Karens, you are not a Karen, Mm. you are Karen. Mm. So that seemed to smooth things out a bit. There was a piece that I did years ago when President uh, Bush was still in charge after Hurricane Katrina that kind of happened organically that there's some hate mail I still haven't opened because that was a little bit jarring. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting the things that touch a nerve with people and, and how they choose to respond and probably before social media as well. Yes, and especially the way they choose to respond to women. Mm. Um, They'll go in for all kinds of, let's just say, gnarly remarks Mm. about one's relationship status, one's hair texture, Mm. color of skin. Helen, I know you know what I mean. Yeah, it's and it's and it's really it's interesting. But as an experiment one time, I actually wrote a couple of people back who'd said really horrible things. And I because I asked a woman to shut up on the Larry King show was a bad thing. But anyway. (laughs) And when I wrote people back and apologized for saying shut up and said, you know, that's not how I was raised, you would be surprised. Like 80% of the few notes that I wrote back, everybody apologized back. (gasps) It was like, I don't know what got into me. I was just angry at the moment. I can't believe you wrote me back. 
And it was it was an interesting, you know, little experiment there. Oh, wow. Actually, Nancy, I, I, I will say the same thing happened to me when I used to write this technology column. Of course, which phone you buy is just as important as whether you're a racist or not. But <laughs> I think what that tells us is that the hate mail writers only partially are interested in the issue. Partly is they just want to be heard by somebody right. they perceive to be in power. Mm. That's key. And and I do some public speaking too, mostly funny speeches. And it really turns out that people want to be heard. And if you give them a chance, even if they're saying stuff that you're like, what the hell? You know, it, if they get it off their chest, you can actually have a conversation. So that's, that's a kind of cool thing. Mm. We mentioned David's book and his many books. You actually are working on a book yourself, Nancy. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, I only said that because David was talking about his book that he published and a book that's already coming out. And I was like, I haven't published anything. <laughs> so I was hoping the next time I did a Zoom interview mm -hmm. to have a mock-up of a fake book behind <laughs> me, like everybody that has books yes. do. And my, my fake book, which is Personal Essays and Stories, the working title is Notes of a Negro Neurotic. And uh, when I told one potential um, book publisher about it, they were very concerned. They were like, I just don't know if you can use the word Negro. That might put you just in the in the black section and whatnot. I was like, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It worked, you know. worked for James anyway, Baldwin, that, I mean. Thank you. That's what I, yeah. yeah. It was a little, a little um, you know, tribute to James Baldwin and to alliteration. So, but it's coming, you know, it's a 20 years strong and I'm, I'm honing in on it. Excellent. Well, we certainly <laughs> wish you luck. And you know what, as far as our listeners know, you are right uh, in front of a big mock-up of your book. So uh, it looks great. That's yeah. right. Oh, I am. Do you like the color? Oh, it's one. Whoa, that font. That font. I know. I love the font that is font. Key. Yeah. And, the, and then my hair. My oh, hair really came amazing. out well that day. Wow. Nice blurb too. Um, <laughs> in addition to the work we've talked about, a lot of people might know you from your work as an actor. You were on for a few seasons on the TV show China Beach. We saw you in, in Working Girl. And you had a role in the movie Big. And I don't know if you remember this, but a couple of years ago, you and I actually corresponded about this because we had a guest on our show who was going to do the topic of Big. This is right before we had to cancel because of the pandemic. And I watched the movie and it struck me that I didn't seem to see any people of color in this movie that takes place in New York City. In New York City. Except for you and your role oh, uh, there. And so I asked Isn't you. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, and I, oh, I remember. Yeah. That, that seems like that's, that was just last year. That seems like 10 what years ago. What is time anymore? I know. Yeah. Right. Uh, and you'd said that hadn't been pointed out. And I don't know if that's actually a fact or just, you know, some weird white dude counting you know, people of color. But yeah, no, no, that is a big miss. And, and it's funny because I, I only worked that day for a couple of hours. Mm -hmm. They were coming from one location to another. And then my part was written as administrative man. In fact, I saved my my line of dialogue, my two lines of dialogue. And I even threw in an extra line, which was, <laughs> uh, next in line, please. Yeah. So just to get a little <laughs> Gotta get but, that plus yeah. three. Can you do your drug commercial in that voice? Oh, Boniva. let's see. <clears throat> the Don't take Boniva and tell your doctor if you have difficult or painful swallow. Okay, I'm not gonna <laughs> 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 That's going to be my new ringtone. I am not David Pogue's puppet. <laughs> <laughs> Last one I ask you about is this podcast that you've done called The Giles Files. First of all, incredible right. title. Tell the people a little bit oh, about what it, it is. I think it's fantastic. Thank you. It's a really fun podcast that's produced by my good friend Nancy Wyatt. And we're just a two-women operation, and it, it covers uh, pop culture, politics. I do parody songs. We got some great interviews. Louis Black was on, uh, Joy Behar. We talk about lots of different things and try to have sort of a thread of a theme through mm -hmm. each thing. But it's it's not your typical just 
Talking Heads show. We try to mix it up with some music and some fun and some commentary, and I love it. Excellent. Well, we thank you for mixing it up with us on our show today. Nancy Giles, everybody. Thanks. I'm looking forward to this. Excellent. So are we. Let's get into it. We ask each of you to provide us with a few topics outside your field of work in which you feel you have some expertise. David, you said you know a lot about movie special effects, the Electric Light Orchestra album Out of the Blue, and Steve Jobs. There's that tech know-how coming in again. <laughs> Whereas Nancy, you told us you know a lot about The Bob Newhart Show, sitcom second bananas of the 1960s, and black hair products from the 1970s, <laughs> not including the horrific Jerry Curl. That is the entire title of that topic. That would be correct. Later on, we're going to ask each of you some in-depth trivia questions about one of those topics. But first, we're going to get your thoughts on something you might know nothing about. It's time to split some hairs with our What's the Difference round. We'll have one question for each of you, each worth up to two points. If either of you gives an incorrect answer, the other person has a chance to steal. Your your topic today, excuse me. First up, David with eggs. David, they both are made with eggs, but what's the difference between an omelet and a frittata? An omelet and a frittata. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, the omelet includes both the yolk and the albumin, mm -hmm. whereas the frittata does mm -hmm. not include the yolk. Interesting. So just the egg white or the albumin. That's right. All right. We've got uh, David's answer. We don't know yet if he's entirely correct. Nancy, you can steal if you don't think he's got it right. What do you think? I believe a frittata might have more vegetables mm -hmm. in it than uh, a typical omelet does. So I'm going to go with that as an answer. It has more vegetables than a more typical vegetables, omelet. More vegetables. More vegetable-centric. I see. I'm more meat-centric, but I'm. that's why I'm not a frittata. Mm. Um, I think we both <laughs> blew it. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll find out very soon. All I know is I wish this segment could end on a good yolk. Let's go to Helen Hong at the judges' oh. table for the facts. <laughs> sorry, sorry that, was a, that was a dad yolk. Oh, oh man. <laughs> We're all crazy. We all needed a moment to, to recover. All right, I'm going to try oh, an alternate. I'm going to try an alternate. All right, this segment's not all that it's cracked up to be. Let's go to Helen Hong at the judges' table <laughs> for the facts. <laughs> that, that one was a hard shell. <laughs> <laughs> Here are the facts. There are three main differences. What you do with the ingredients, how you cook it, and where you cook it. An omelet's non-egg ingredients are laid on top of the eggs, which are then folded over before serving. It's cooked very fast on high heat, and only one side of the omelet ever touches the pan. A frittata's non-egg ingredients are mixed in, and it's cooked low and slow on both sides, flipping the eggs like a pancake. That's right. Uh, also, omelets should always be served hot, but a frittata can be served at room temperature to give your guests the uneasy feeling that you were serving them a day-old omelet. <laughs> Helen, how did they do in that round? Sadly, even though I am impressed with the use of albumin as mm -hmm. opposed to egg white, uh, neither one of you got this right. No. no, 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 I'm terribly sorry. Oh, dear. I guess it's because I'm, I'm not a very good cook. What I make, I guess, is more of a fritomlet. Ah. Yeah, I was going to say the exact same thing because my omelets are cooked on both sides and the main thing is keeping it in the pan. So there you are. <laughs> my problem is keeping it in the kitchen. <laughs> yes, it gets, that violent flipping really gets really really gets some distance on it. All right, no points there. Up next, and what's the difference is Nancy. Nancy, your question comes from a listener. Who is it, Helen? It's from Michelle Medina of North Highlands, California. Thank you, Michelle. Listeners, if you would like to submit a suggestion for our What's the Difference round, go to gofactyourpod.com and click on Get Involved. All right, Nancy, in the topic of excuse me, excuse me, they both might be things you say when you're trying to be polite, but what is the difference between excuse me and pardon me? Excuse me and pardon me. 
hmm, what is the difference between excuse me and pardon me? I would say pardon me is for a more egregious mm. error than excuse me. Excuse me is a little simpler and lighter. Pardon mm-hmm. me has more more intention for something that's done in a worse way. In a worse way, okay. So yeah. if you do if you do a little thing, you say excuse me. If you did yeah. something really bad, you say pardon, pardon me. Pardon me, yeah, oh. that's my thought. All right, very good. Uh, we've got Nancy's answer. We don't know yet if she is correct. David, what do you think? Uh, I think that in practical use, they're used interchangeably. But <laughs> in the spirit of this game show, um, I will say that excuse me is something you say before committing the offense. Mm-hmm. And pardon me is something you say after you have bumped someone oh. or spilled the coffee on them. All right. Well, this segment needs to be excused. Let's go to Helen Hong at the judges table for the facts. Here are the facts. You say excuse me before you do something that might inconvenience someone else, like interrupt a conversation or leave the table. It's used to get attention. You say pardon me after you've done something that inconvenienced someone else, like bumped into them. It's used to ask for forgiveness. Uh-huh. That's right. As David mentioned, they are often used interchangeably, but as Helen described it, that is the proper usage. So next time you sneeze, don't say excuse me, say pardon me, especially if you didn't cover your mouth. <laughs> also, Gesundheit. Helen, how did our guest do? I think David Pogue got both parts of that correct. Two I think points. he did as well. Very nice, David. What is our score at the end of that round? At the end of that round, David Pogue has two points and Nancy Giles has zero points. But those scores are bound to change as we move on to questions about topics our guests have chosen for themselves. That's all up ahead when we come back on Go Fact Yourself. Lifespan Fitness is a sponsor of this show. And Helen, I know you've got something to say about them. Oh my gosh. Lifespan Fitness, when they offered to be a sponsor, actually sent me an under-desk treadmill and it was just in time because it was just when we were getting our brand new baby and now I'm trapped at home and I can't ever leave. So the only way that I'm getting any exercise is with this under-desk treadmill. It is super clutch. I can get my work done while at my desk and getting my steps in at the same time. Now, Helen, do you recommend that people change their babies while they are using the under-desk treadmill and exercise bike? No, that that's the one thing. That's the one thing is that our desk is now half work desk, half baby changing station. Mm. That is the one time I will not actually use the under-desk <laughs> treadmill while I'm changing the baby because, you know, I could see like that going really south really fast. Yes. So don't change a baby while on the under-desk treadmill. You but heard it do- from Helen Hong right here. <laughs> but otherwise... Any other activity that you do at a desk, under desk treadmill, super clutch. That's amazing. Well, it just proves that Lifespan Fitness really is dedicated to making fitness accessible and affordable. They believe that your office should help you work and feel better with these under-desk treadmills and exercise bikes. Lifespan Fitness treadmill and bike desks help you make the most of your workspace, whether you're starting your fitness journey or wanting to stay more active at work or at home with a new baby. You know, treadmill desks can seem like they might be hard to use or even dangerous, but don't worry about it. Most work will become second nature within a week or so. Typically, people walk between 0.5 and 2 miles per hour, so think of how many miles you can log while you work. 
And if you have a standing desk or a desk that you love, you can easily add an under desk bike or treadmill. Or if you need a complete setup, Lifespan also sells the desk equipment in a combo. Helen, what should people do if they want to learn more about Lifespan Fitness under desk treadmills and exercise bikes? Visit LifespanFitness.com and use GFY5 at checkout for 5% off. That's LifespanFitness.com and code GFY5. Thank, Thank you, you Lifespan Fitness. Fitness. Hello, I'm Riley Smurl. I'm Sydney McElroy. And I'm Taylor Smurl. And we host Still Buffering, a cross-generational guide to the culture that made us. Every week, we share media that made us who we are. Things like Archie Comics, Sailor Moon, and lots of Taylor Swift. And now that Riley's an adult, it comes with 100% more butts. And now I am totally comfortable with it. So check out new episodes of Still Buffering every Thursday on MaximumFun.org. Butts, butts, butts. Join in, Riley. Butts, 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 Helen, we have a Jumbotron message. What is that exactly? The Jumbotron program allows anyone to share their message on a MaximumFun.org podcast. Just like the Jumbotron at a ballpark, it's a fun way to show your support for your favorite shows and get the word out about what you're up to. It's easy and cheap. Only 100 bucks for a personal message or 200 bucks for a promotional one. You can book your Jumbotron message by going to MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron. And today's Jumbotron is from Mike Butler, and it is this. From the creator of the English Sessions comes Get the Word, an etymology podcast for word nerds. Join Mike as he picks apart words and phrases in English and lets you peek into his fact cabinet. More information and audio transcripts are available at www.englishsessionswithmike.com. We love a fact cabinet here. Indeed. Go fact yourself. Search for Get the Word with Mike Butler on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or just put it into a search engine. That's Get the Word with Mike Butler. Thank you, Mike Butler. And thank, thank you, Jumbotron. I went low. I'm going to try that again sometime. Welcome back to Go Fact Yourself with our guests, David Pogue and Nancy Giles. Once again, here's J. Keith Van Stratton. Thank you, Helen. All right, David, of your many interests, you told us you know a lot about movie special effects, the Electric Light Orchestra album Out of the Blue, and Steve Jobs. Let's find out a little bit more about each of those. First, tell us why you chose movie special effects as one of your topics. Well, I am sort of a magic nut. Um, I started as a young kid watching I Dream of Genie and Bewitched and wishing that I could be magic. And special effects in movies have an obvious connection too. So my theory is that they are basically magic tricks with the biggest possible audience. And the methods they use are absolutely amazing. And so for years, even though this is definitely not my line of work, I have subscribed to this magazine called Cinefix, which is like this monthly coffee table book that exposes how the latest movies did their special effects. Tragically, along with thousands of restaurants and other small businesses, Cinefix bit the dust Oh dry. no, oh it no, that is, that is tragic. Were you so upset? I, I'm, I was so upset, I was so upset. I, 
I literally was standing there reading the editor's note in the final issue, oh. and I had my kids come over to read it with me. They, you know, <laughs> looked at me a little peculiarly, but it, it really made me sad. That was that's a great industry that no one knows about. Oh. The special effects industry. We pour one out for Cinefix. <laughs> Indeed, we will. All right, uh, David. Uh, you also said you know a lot about the Electric Light Orchestra album, Out of the Blue. Yeah, this was a, a double album, <clears throat> 1977. Most people probably know it for its biggest hit, Mr. Blue Sky, uh, which has been used in a lot of movies and ads. And, and mainly, I mean, the thing about ELO is that they combined this sort of Beatles band with a string section from mm. an orchestra, thus Electric Light Orchestra. And to me, it was sort of this uh, gateway drug to pop and rock, the mm. fact that they had a classical string section on top of rock instruments. And also, I mean, anyone who knows music or music theory or composition, the chords that Jeff Lynn, the, the composer, lyricist, singer, guitarist uses, the chord sequences are, they're right up there with Rachmaninoff, they're, mm. they're great. So it, it really taught me music. It made me interested in music. Take that, Rachmaninoff. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, I hope he doesn't listen to this show. Uh, no, we don't and, want to insult him. No, no, no. And finally, David, you said you know a lot about Steve Jobs. Yeah, my wife said this was cheating because I did cover technology <laughs> for a lot of years. But I figured, like, he's not technology, right? Mm. He's a guy with a life story and relationships and a famous personality. Um, fascinating, fascinating person, you know, achieved more than 10 people of normal achievement ever will, and yet was this raging tyrant baby. Just a, a really intriguing guy. I met him a few times during my New York Times era, hmm. and he was always, you know, really super abrasive <gasps> and really super brilliant. All right, so to summarize, David, you said you know a lot about movie special effects, the Electric Light Orchestra album Out of the Blue, and Steve Jobs. Today, we're going to quiz you about movie special effects. Woo! All right, you seem very excited. Now, you were very clear when you were giving us your topic uh, that you said it's more how they do it than how they did X effect in Y historical movie. Uh, was that just to cover <laughs> your to cover your bases a little bit better? Or is there yeah, I was hoping to narrow it down. Oh, I okay. Want you to, I wouldn't, didn't want you doing this like, in the 1931, yes. you know, obscure <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, this will be interesting to see what the questions are then. You mentioned that you uh, enjoyed magic a lot and that you see movie special effects as magic. A lot of times when people learn how a magic trick is done, it ruins it for them or it can make them appreciate the trick more. Uh, do you find that when you know how something's done, which is it for you? Yeah, I, th I think the answer to that depends on whether you are in the industry or mm -hmm. an observer of the industry. So I would think that, yeah, for an audience, knowing how it's done would be disappointing, whether it's a special effect or a magic trick. Mm -hmm. If you're a magician or a special effects professional, you're more likely to go, damn, that was clever. Yeah. And I know you've hosted some Emmy uh, award ceremonies that feature technical achievements and all that. Did you get to meet some of the people who make, if not special effects in movies and in television? Yeah, I host the, the technical Emmys every year mm -hmm. for the National Association of Television Arts and Sciences. And often I, I do get to meet, you know, a lot of them are really technical, like people who developed new wireless protocols for transmission of live news broadcasts and, mm -hmm. you know, 
but uh, but every now and then, you know, I, I got to meet a pioneer of blue screen and yes. things like that. So every now and then. Oh, that's great. Well, just ahead, we're going to enlist the help of a bona fide expert in your topic with our three-part question. But before that, to give you a chance to show off, here are five trivia questions about your topic, each worth one point. If you want it, you're allowed a total of two hints in these five questions. Now, Nancy, do listen closely because you can steal if David gets any wrong. Nancy, by the way, how much do you know about movie special effects? I know that I like them. Okay, well. <laughs> I'm a so if you, are they cool? <laughs> yeah, okay, good. Good, so you won't feel resentment if you're called upon to answer a question. I absolutely will feel the opposite of resentment Excellent. if I'm asked to answer, yes. All right, well, let's see if David gives you that opportunity. David, here's your first question about movie special effects. When it comes to movie special effects, more and more how they do it is by using visual effects like CGI. The G stands for generated. The I stands for imagery. What does the C stand for? <laughs> cool. No, 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 that's oh. a joke. That's a joke. <laughs> no, that would be computer. Helen? That is correct. That is correct, computer. Fun fact, the first fully animated CGI character was used in the movie Young Sherlock Holmes back in 1985. All right, here's question number two. David, CGI is often used in conjunction with a technique where actors' movements are recorded while wearing special suits with markers so that these movements can later be animated. What is this technique called? Ah, that's called motion capture. They look like little ping pong balls on your suit, and the, that way the... They can reproduce your emotions to be like Gollum or some monster. Helen? That is correct. That is correct. Uh, and with the ping pong ball bonus. Thank you so much. By the way, Nancy Nancy is applauding all of your correct answers, which we, we appreciate the good sportsmanship. It's relief on my part. Oh, okay. But you don't have to answer. <laughs> Surely uh, Nancy knows that the first two questions are always super easy. <laughs> all right. Fun fact, though the terms are used interchangeably, motion capture that includes an actor's hands, fingers, and face is often referred to as performance capture. And for some reason, we've just wasted a perfectly good what's the difference question. <laughs> it's also really hard to get the ping pong balls on their face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but worth it. But worth it. Uh, here's question number three. Some special effects artists don't just inspire other effects artists. They inspire directors, too. Steven Spielberg, Peter Jackson, Guillermo del Toro, and Joe Dante are just a few of the filmmakers who credit what legendary effects trailblazer who invented a form of stop-motion model animation seen in films like Mighty Joe Young and Clash of the Titans. Oh, man. I know that guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to call in a hint, please, Helen. All right, Helen, how about that first hint? It rhymes with Blay Blairy Blousen. Oh, Ray, Ray Harryhausen. Thank Hel you. Helen? That is correct. Oh, wow. <laughs> amazing. Oh, I love those hints. Yes, amazing. You got the subtlety from Helen's I hint. I those hints, man. <laughs> yes. The hints are there for a reason. Uh, you're three for three. Uh, fun fact, Joe Dante, who we mentioned in that question, appeared as an expert on episode 63 of Go Fact Yourself. All right, David, you're three for three. Here's question number four. To recreate the motion of, say, an ocean liner sinking, or astronauts hurtling through space, or a speeding train, directors can place the action on hydraulic motion platforms that can move very heavy objects in all directions. What is this handy device called? Uh, it's called a gimbal. Helen? That is correct. That is correct for the point. Very good. You did not need the hint in that one, but Helen, what would that hint have been? It's the classic former rival to Macy's. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, Nancy. Or at least one Macy. It was just one Macy. <laughs> Macy and Gimbals. Uh, fun fact, as referenced in that question, giant Gimbals were used for the astronauts in Gravity, the sinking ocean liner in Titanic, and the train in Snowpiercer. A smaller Gimbal can be used for camera moves as well. 
David, you have a chance to go five for five. Here's question number five. You do still have a hint available. We think of special effects as a modern movie phenomenon, but in fact, the first known special effects shot goes back to a film from 1895, The Execution of Mary, Queen of Scots. What is the term for the trick shot used in this movie and duplicated endless times since? What Alfred Clark did is he put her head on the guillotine and then stopped the camera and then had the actress move away and they put in a dummy mannequin with a fake head, then continued the camera mm-hmm. so that the head would fall off. I, th- I think the term for that is stop camera. Helen? I will give it to you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's uh, it's called a stop trick or stop action, uh, also known as a substitution shot. A substitution shot. David Pogue, you are five for five. Woo! Thank you, sir. I think you deserved the point just on the fact that you knew about a movie from 1895. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice. BT Dubs, I didn't know there were movies in 1895. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, fun fact, The Execution of Mary, Queen of Scots was produced by Thomas Edison and is 18 seconds long. So, Helen, you might have time to uh, fit in your schedule to watch it. <laughs> I think I think the answer, Helen, is that there weren't movies in those days. What there were were Vine videos. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they, they yes. invented Vine that 100 years before. Yeah. yeah, and he named it the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, because that's literally the only shot. Yeah, that, exactly. That is literally <laughs> the only shot in the movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I think they should have is what they should have called Vine. Um, <laughs> all right, David, you obviously did very well in that round, but now here's your expert-level question that requires multiple answers. It is time for your cluster fact. We'll be bringing on an expert to assess your response. David, the 1978 movie Superman uses the tagline, you'll believe a man can fly. It delivered on that promise to millions of viewers thanks to an extensive array of special effects, none of which used CGI. Superman appeared to fly by combining three different techniques common to movie special effects. One effect was used for when he takes off and lands, one for when he turns and twists, and one for the bulk of his flying, especially when he's positioned horizontally. For up to three points, what are these three special effect techniques? Okay, so wire rigs, obviously, suspended from above on a cable that they then uh, paint out in post. Blue screen or green green screen, where mm-hmm. they film them against a blank blue or green screen and then substitute that later with an image that they they choose and then they combine them in an optical printer. And what was the third one? Uh, I, I don't know, trampoline. A trampoline. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did not see that one coming after those first two. Well, for the takeoff shot. I can't yeah. think of what the third would be. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Helen is taking note of those answers. We have an expert on hand who can tell us for sure. Helen, who do we have tonight? Joining us tonight is a director, producer, author, and special effects pioneer who earned a BAFTA and an Oscar for his work as director of special effects on the movie Superman. It's Colin Chilvers. Hi there. Cool. Wow. Hello. Welcome. Very cool. Hi. Thank you. Thank you so much. I believe you are joining us from our neighbor to the North Canada. I am. I live in Niagara Falls. Yes, and I can tell from that Canadian accent. <clears throat> I'm English, actually. Yeah. Okay. No, I was making. <laughs> I was making a joke. Yes, very English. And as as a as a bit of interest, the reason I live in Canada is I came over to shoot the location for Superman Two when Superman saves the kid over the falls. Mm -hmm. And I met a young lady that is now my wife. So I moved from England to Canada. Oh, wow. That's that's the best reason. Yes, Mm -hmm. very nice. For sure. Uh, 
Well, we'll talk about Superman uh, in a little bit. You, of course, you won that Oscar for Superman, but you also worked on its sequels. You mentioned Superman 2. Uh, you've also worked on uh, X-Men, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. You've directed hundreds of TV commercials, dozens of music videos, including Michael Jackson's Smooth Criminal video. What? Yep. That uh, no has gone way. to great acclaim. Absolutely, Helen. So let's get into it a little bit. First of all, do you make a distinction between special effects and visual effects? Not anymore. Yeah? No, I mean, it's it, the Academy just counts it all as visual effects. Okay. So th- I just want to make sure because I have a feeling some of our listeners will get mad that we were asking about CGI when <laughs> David's topic was special effects. But we have a professional here who sees them as uh, in oh, the same quite, category. Quite often... Even if, if things like, for instance, you were talking about the gravity mm-hmm. and the gimbal that they used on gravity. Yep. Well, my nephew, one of my nephews did the effects on gravity. Oh, got, wow. an Academy, wow. got an Academy Award for it. Wow. And, oh, my goodness. And, the family. and obviously they shot the actors against the blue screen, but the gimbal was made by an, what I would call a physical effects mm-hmm. person. So it's very much integrated. And like right. flying Superman on wires in front of a blue screen uh, would be considered to be both visual effects because it's a bit of each. Okay, what, great. What, so, if I could just give please. you one more interesting point about Superman, and that is we the only technique available for process at those days was actually blue screen because of the sensitivity of the film stocks. And, of course, Superman wears a blue outfit. Right. Right. Wow. Oh, man. Brutal. So we had a very, very smart and unfortunately passed away gentleman called Roy Field, who was the optical, and never says the optical effects man. Mm -hmm. And he came up with the idea of having Superman's blue outfit move slightly on the color scale to be more like a bluey green. Mm-hmm. Turquoise is what I'd read about it. Yeah. Almost turquoise. Yeah, yeah, almost turquoise. So he could then split that from the blue screen. And then in post-production, they would color correct it to make it back into blue. Whoa. Oh, see, I love that. That is so cool. And that's something you had to learn by doing. That's not something that was written in a exactly. book before or anything I mean, like that. A, another example, if I may, sure. is he, Superman's cape. Mm-hmm. When we did the initial tests, as soon as you put a wind machine on Superman and his cape, especially when he's flying horizontal, it would wrap around his body. Right. (laughs) Not very heroic looking, is it? No, it wasn't at all. So we ended up making this rig that would go on Chris's back that was a, a series of cams and a bunch of, I think, like seven or eight um, fishing pole tips. Oh, wow. And, th- and those would make the, the go like so. And then the cape was fixed to that. And that wow. went, we had a bit wow. of wind on it as well. I that mean, that, the that's the kind of stuff that really blows my mind about the early days of special effects. Like you're, you're talking about the 70s, you know, before a lot of CGI was available. And like, you had to just be j- just you just had to be like, how do I solve this very weird problem? Fishing wire. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was the special effects to me was always problem solving. Well, let's go back a little bit. Your first gig uh, working in special effects, working in movies of any kind, I believe, was just out of art school and it was on a pretty important film, but didn't last for very long. Can you tell us that story? Well, actually, my first job was working as an animator for an animation company, um, but I was working in Boreham Wood, which is north of London, and just down the street was um, MGM Studios. 
And every month I would get the union list of available jobs. And one job came up to work on this movie called 2001 as a junior in the art department. I think I was 22, 23 years old. Went for the interview, had a very nice interview with a producer who said, you're good, you've got the job. I started on Monday in the art department. The production designer just arrived back from a vacation, asked me who I was, and I told him I was your new assistant. <laughs> he left the office briefly and came back shortly afterwards with the production manager who said, I'm sorry, but we have to give you two weeks' notice. <gasps> oh, my goodness. Welcome to show business. <laughs> what I didn't realize, and I guess the producer hadn't realized, that one of the pr production designer's family was up for the job and not for me. Oh, oh. no, nepotism. <laughs> you lost out to nepotism? I can't complain. I've got four nephews in special effects now. Oh, <laughs> well, then. You learned, you learned your lesson well. That's right. You That's did. right. It all comes around. And you can still put the movie on your resume. You did work there for two weeks. I did. That's wow. right. You're right. I did. I also worked just out of interest, Doug, uh, David, with um, Ray Harryhausen. What? Wow! I, I did two. What are you, two hundred years old? No, he was he was quite old at the time, but great guy, very wonderful guy. That's what did you think of my Blay Blairy Blousen tip? I thought that was. I was wondering what you'd come up with. That was very good. Thank you. Very good. It was very effective. Uh, yes. Well, let's talk more about uh, Superman. Uh, were you a fan of Superman before you got a chance to work on the movie? Oh, kind of. Yeah. 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 I know you also uh, had a great solution for the destruction of Krypton and how you had to have these giant crystals uh, crash through the planet. Um, and that's yeah. not something that people might think of as a special effect, but tell, tell us what you built for that. Well, we, the set was built probably 15 feet off the ground, off of the stage floor. And we built these pneumatic rams that the crystals were on so that we could use air to push them through the, the floor which, you know, we had a $10 million actor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do, you, how, do you get the, how do you get them to not hit Marlon Brando? Well, it wasn't so much that, but because yeah. the floor had to be prepared for the yeah. thing to break through, we didn't want him walking over ah, okay. the false floor. Yeah. disappearing off the set. <laughs> of course. Mm. Uh, well, you've written a book about your experience called Believing a Man Can Fly, Memories right. of a Life in Special Effects and Film, uh, where you talk about these things and more. Was mm. the flying the, the hardest effect to uh, to get right on the on the movie? Yeah, trying to make people believe it, it would work. Yeah. Uh, I can I mean, still remember that, that slogan, you'll believe a man can fly. That I mean, it was the first in the, that I can think of only movie that was basically saying, watch this movie because of the special mm. effects. Mm. It was brilliant, yeah. It was a brilliant uh, thing to put on, the, you know, to challenge people, really. Yeah, and you had to deliver. Yeah, yeah I mean, the thing, that, that movie was only successful because of Christopher Reeve. Well, tell us about that. Tell us about how working with him sort of sold the effects. He, he thought he was Superman. <laughs> he thought he could fly. What do you mean by that? We had finished Superman 1, we'd got an Academy Award, and we were good. So the first sequence we shot was in Niagara Falls. So the first day of shooting, Chris had arrived the night before, and actually he took, us, took all the effects guys out for dinner at Mamma Mia's, I remember. And <laughs> the next day we were going to fly him because he's going to take off to, to save the kid. And we had a stunt guy that we put on the we had a 60 foot crane there and we had the sun guy on the rip wires 
to pull him up and down for let him try. And I must point out at this stage in the, the game, in that type time, you had to use the thinnest possible wires that you could. And we were using piano wire, which was one, one uh, it was just less than an eighth of an inch thick. Mm. And once Chris had been asked what, you know, what's the difference, he said, between me falling 15 feet or 60 feet, I'm still <laughs> going to die. There was three or 400 people out, out of sight from the camera, obviously. Chris came on the set to put a, uh, a bathrobe on. And uh, we said to him, do you want to give it a whirl? Because he hadn't done any of it for six months. And he said, no, let's just go for it. So we hooked him up. We oh took it goodness. off. They rolled the cameras. He took off. All the hairs on the back of my neck went up because it was amazing because he looked like he was flying. Mm. And he, he just felt, I'm sure, mm. that he believed that he could fly. And wow. It was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah, I've, I've seen uh, interviews with other effects artists on that film, and they said the best special effect was Christopher Reeve. Oh, mm. absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. So let's get to the reason. Uh, these are such wonderful stories. People can read more about it in your book called Believing a Man Can Fly. Let's get to the reason we brought you here as far as our game is concerned. You heard the question that we asked of David. We wanted to know what were the three techniques that were combined to give Superman the illusion of flight in the 1978 movie Superman. Helen, what was the first answer that David gave us? David said, why? rigs. And Mr. Chilvers? That's correct. That is correct. Uh, wire yes. rigs uh, for the takeoff and landing. All right. Uh, that's a point there for David. What was the second answer that David gave us, Helen? David said blue screen or green screen. And uh, Mr. Chilvers? That was blue screen. Blue screen, yes. Also known as chroma key. Another point for David. And finally, Helen, what was the third technique that David said was used for making Superman fly? David said trampoline. And Mr. Chilvers? Well, not correct. Exactly. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was very suspenseful for a moment there. Well, it was, the, I mentioned before that when, when he took off, we used the teeter-totter quite often. Oh, no, you didn't mention that. So he, he wasn't that far off, teeter-totter. Well, because... that was for, for just for a takeoff. But the, the other main, the other main um, use was to have Chris, and in some cases Chris and um, Lana, or Superman and Lana, on a rig that was a post that went through a screen that had a gimbal, a, a hydraulic gimbal, so that we could move them around. And that screen was what we call front screen projection. Front screen projection. I'm sorry, yeah. no, no mm. point there, but a very entertaining wrong answer. Yes. Uh, David, before we let Mr. Chilvers go, anything you'd like to uh, say or ask of our expert? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for joining us. This is so cool for well, well, an effects, effects nut like me. Um, did you ever read Cinefix? <laughs> Actually, I, I made a note. I, I had some long and very nice conversations with Don Shea, who, mm -hmm. was, the, who was the editor of that magazine. Four or five years ago, because I've done a few articles for him as well. Um, I, with a with another friend here, were putting together an idea to do a TV series called Cinefix about oh. to kind of um, celebrate the art of special effects. And we thought that it would be a good deal to get somebody like Cinefix involved as well. And in fact, he was very interested. And we had a one time we had a contract with him that if we did it, he would be part of it. Because at that time, he was realizing as well that he needed to go to away from the published thing on paper to more e stuff as well. So he was very interested. We put together a really strong proposal. 
I'm a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences in the Special Effects, Visual Effects Division. And I don't know if you're aware of it, but every year we get a whole bundle of information from the 10 movies that are nominated for visual effects. And over the last five, six years, they will send us video, which is explained by the special effects people as to how they achieved the effects. And it, I mean, it fascinates me. And yeah, I'm so sure you, it would you, fascinate a bunch of other people. You like so, knowing how that magic tricks are done. By the way, if you need a host for that show, it sounds like David Pogue might be <laughs> yeah, waving yeah, his hands <laughs> frantically. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's interesting to me, having been lived through it, as to how these people come up with these ideas to make the effects work. And also, I've got a nephew, one of my other nephews, who also <laughs> also won an Academy Award, has done has done the visual the effects for the last ten Bond movies. Wow! Oh my goodness! Wow! That so, is so cool. Well, it's, whether whether they're related to you or not, it's very clear the legacy that uh, <laughs> that you have with the effects that works that you've done, especially in Superman. We're so happy that you joined us. If people want to find out more about you or your work, Colin Chilvers, where can they go? I've got my website, colinchilvers.com. My book is available on all the major things like Amazon and um, all the other things. And I put it on my website because if anyone wants a copy with me signing it, they can get it through my website. Oh, how lovely. That's so cool. That's cool. My birthday is coming up. Uh, all right. <laughs> email me. Email me and I'll send okay, you Okay, we'll put it together. Okay. Well, thank you, Colin, for making this episode even more special. Colin Chilvers, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank all right. you. What an honor. Thank you, Colin. Bye. Helen, what is our score at the end of that exciting round? At the end of that round, David Pogue has nine points and Nancy Giles has zero points with a round of questions for Nancy coming up. That's right. We're going to talk with Nancy about a topic she knows about. Plus, later, David and Nancy will go head-to-head in our Fast Facts round, all to find a winner on Go Fact Yourself. Helen, I have an exciting update from last episode's steamy text messages that I shared between me and my girlfriend that were primarily about Magic Spoon. (laughs) Is this, as I recall, she was like, I miss magic spoon and said nothing about missing you <laughs> no that is that is you were recalling exactly correct there was also a coupon code involved in our uh, in our steamy text hot that's what makes a relationship work well uh, it turns out that that was all just foreplay if you will for a discovery that i made the, the following week where i opened my cabinet and there were waiting for me three boxes of magic spoon cereal oh that she got for you that she got for oh, me now that is love knowing how much you love magic spoon that is love. She yes. Really was now, trying to make I you will happy. note that uh, when you order a variety box of Magic Spoon, uh, it comes with four boxes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so she did say she one was for herself. Like, three for you, yes. one for me. Yes, which is, you know, it's you know, better I, than one for me and three for her. You know, I, I feel like that's fair, actually. Yeah, you like know what? It's. Fair. It's all about self-care. The thing I took away from it mainly is that I'm very easy to shop for because I legitimately love Magic Spoon. Not only are we happy to have them as a sponsor of our show, but I am a customer. My girlfriend is a customer. Several of my friends uh, text me saying how much they love it also. And we think that you, our listeners, will love it as well. Because, you know, trying to eat better can feel like a drag sometimes. Healthy breakfast doesn't have to be boring. Magic Spoon has these amazing flavors you love without all the bad stuff. Helen, I beseech you, tell them about the good stuff. (laughs) 
Magic Spoon has 0 grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, 140 calories, and only 4 net grams of carbs in each serving. By the way, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I was looking it up, and some of those uh, regular sugary cereals, guess how many grams of carbs they have in a serving? The same oh, serving of Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon nice. has maybe uh, has has four grams of carbs, thirty-two grams of carbs. What? You can get. Yep, there is a certain. I won't. I won't say a brand, but there is a certain flake that has frosting upon it. <gasps> let us say, thirty-two grams of carbs and thirteen Whoa. grams of sugar in the same comparable bowl as delicious Magic Spoon. Wow, so we're I, talking about. I knew it was going to be higher, but I didn't yeah. realize the differential would be that it vast. Is, four, four to thirty-two, folks. Come yes. on. That's, that's I'm going to say, eight times. Eight times. Is <laughs> Jay Keith is good at math. Yes. In addition, Magic yes. Spoon is keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, all the frees, GMO-free, and low-carb. And you can build your own box or get a variety pack with available flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, and cinnamon. And you don't have to keep them all for yourself or give all of them away. <laughs> like Jay Keith said, yeah. a standard package comes with four boxes so you can share with friends. Go to magicspoon.com slash gofact to grab your delicious cereal and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code gofact at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash gofact and use the code gofact to save $5 off. Thank you, Magic Spoon. Hey, I'm Dan McCoy. I'm Stuart Wellington. And I'm Elliot Kalin. Together, we're The Flophouse. A podcast where we watch a bad movie and then talk about it. Movies like Space Hobos, Into the Outer Reaches of the Unknown and the Things That We Don't Know, the movie, and also, Who's That Grandma? Zazzle Zippers. Breakdown 2 and Backhanded Compliment. Elvis is a policeman. Baby Crocodile and the Happy Twins. Leftover Potatoes? Station Wagon 3. Herbie Goes to Hell. New episodes available every other Saturday. Available at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye! Bye. Welcome back to Go Fact Yourself with our guests, David Pogue and Nancy Giles. Once again, here's J. Keith Van Stratton. Thank you, Helen. All right, Nancy, of your many interests, you told us you know a lot about The Bob Newhart Show, sitcom Second mm-hmm. Bananas of the 1960s, and black hair products from the 1970s, not including the horrific Jerry Curl. <laughs> Let's find out a little bit more about each of those. Tell us why you chose The Bob Newhart Show as one of your topics. Well, it was one of my favorites. And like a lot of people I know, uh, born around the time that I was born in the 1960s and 70s, Saturday nights meant watching the CBS comedies. You know, it was Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart. And the Bob Newhart show I always thought was way underrated. The characters were wonderful. It was a very cool sitcom. One of the few where the lead couple, Bob and Emily, didn't have kids. They were still wild about each other and had an interesting life. Although Howard was kind of their kid. <laughs> the funny thing is that he's a shrink and he's also mm-hmm. nuts. So it was just the, the collection of people in Chicago and everything was just 
I loved it. Excellent. All right. You also said you know yeah. a lot about sitcom second bananas of the 1960s. It's because I always loved sitcoms. Mm-hmm. And when I would fantasize, not that I thought I was going to be an actress when I was younger, but I, I always was drawn to the second banana. The stars wait, were wait, one thing, but it was second, the person. What does second banana mean? It's it's like the, the supporting player. Like, in, 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 for instance, on the Mary Tyler Moore show, it would have been Rhoda Morgenstern mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Phyllis mm-hmm. and, and all of the other um, ensemble players. But they're the ones that kind of cross through the scene and throw a funny line over their shoulder and keep moving. I was fascinated by those characters and a lot of them were um, just heroes of mine that had rich careers and I would see them in all kinds of little things and look out for them. Yeah, I love them. That's what I wanted to be. Oh, neat. Uh, All right. And finally, you said you know a lot about black hair products from the 1970s, not including the horrific Jerry Curl. (laughs) The horrific Jerry Curl. Yeah, that was a very, very bad bad point in black hair hair (laughs) What was so horrific about it? Well, okay, imagine you're on a New York City subway in the 1970s, early 80s, and maybe you've fallen asleep and you wake up and you're trying to see what station Mm -hmm. you've come into, and the person that was sitting next to you uh, that got up and left had a jerry curl, and you can't see through the window <laughs> because there's this oily uh, residue, oh, and you don't know Shellac- whether you're, yeah. you're as hot. Yeah, you, exactly. You don't know if you're in Times Square Station or Boston. Yeah. You know, it's that bad. It's like putting it. it was just it's like a, putting Vaseline on the lens, but it's in real life. Yeah, the jerry curl was pretty, pretty bad. In fact, if you saw Coming to America, there's a funny running joke where uh, Eric LaSalle's character, I think, stands up from sitting on a chair, and yeah. you see this. Big grease. Yes, from from Soul Glow. Soul Soul Glow. glow. Let your soul glow. There she is. To summarize, Nancy, you said you know a lot about the Bob Newhart show, sitcoms, second bananas of the 1960s, and black hair products from the 1970s, not including the horrific Jerry Curl. Today we're going to quiz you about sitcom second bananas of the 1960s. All right. Uh, Okay. Some of your favorites. So there was Valerie Harper and the woman who played for Cloris Leachman, everybody in the Mary Tyler Moore show that wasn't Mary. Everybody on, uh, oh, the Here's Lucy, mm-hmm. B-Cast, Vivian Vance is another mm-hmm. good one. Um, on Room 222, I'd say Karen Valentine was kind of a second mm-hmm. banana. Denise Nicholas. There, there's a bunch that I just always identify with. And what with. is it about the 1960s that uh, those sitcoms that speak to that, you? They just, they meant a lot to me. I was young, really young and beginning to watch and appreciate TV. And I just, I think I drank it in. So, uh, you know... I was born in 1960. Mm-hmm. There, I've said it, my age. <laughs> so, but like shows like That Girl and Ted Bessel and, and th- those shows just, they climbed into mm. my heart in a way that, that a lot of shows, from the 60s to the mid-70s, mm-hmm. they're just very special shows That's a me. lovely uh, metaphor. Just ahead, we're going to enlist the help of a bona fide expert in your topic to test your mastery in the subject with an expert level question worth up to three points. But before that, to let you show your love, here are five trivia questions about the topic, each worth one point. If you you want it, you're allowed to hint for any two of these five questions. David, do listen closely because if Nancy answers incorrectly, you could steal. David, how much do you know about sitcom Second Bananas of the 1960s? I've heard the name of the topic. Okay, well, <laughs> that's something. All right, Nancy, here's question number one. Nancy, just because you're a sitcom Second Banana doesn't mean you can't earn great acclaim. In fact, Don Knotts won five Emmy Awards for playing What Second Banana on The Andy Griffith Show. That would be Barney Fife. Helen? That is correct. That is correct. Very good. Uh, Fun fact, we did an entire segment on The Andy Griffith Show with guest Tom Bergeron on episode 18 of Go Fact Yourself. And wait a minute. I I worked with Tom Bergeron on Fox After Breakfast years ago. He's a good buddy of mine. 
Oh, very good. Yeah. Well, you've got something in common hey. you can talk about there. Excellent. Here's question number two. A classic second banana of the 1960s, Barney Rubble of the Flintstones, reminded a lot of people of a classic sitcom second banana of the 1950s, Ed Norton of the Honeymooners. And Barney's voice might remind you of even more classic characters since he was originally voiced by what actor who also brought Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, and Porky Pig to life? I'm going to guess that it's Mel Blanc. Helen? That is correct. That is correct. You did not need the hint, but Helen, what would that hint have been? It would be ironic if you can't pull his last name. You might even say you're drawing a... Blank! Very good. Nancy gets it. Helen, you're a genius. <laughs> Fun fact, Barney was portrayed on film by Rick Moranis and Stephen Baldwin, who I'm sure go for the same parts many, many times. <laughs> Nancy, you're two for two. Here's question number three. Just because you're seen as a sitcom second banana doesn't mean you can't also be seen as a sex symbol. That was certainly the case for Barbara Feldon of Get Smart, who worked as a fashion model before and after her time on the classic sitcom. What numerically named character did she play on that show? She was Agent 99. Helen? That is correct. That is correct for the point. Again, you 99, not... <laughs> I keep holding you. There's a pop song, right? I'm not, I'm not familiar with it. I was thinking Luff Balloons, but what do, what do I know? No, uh, is it Super, Super Tramp or something? They, they did a song oh, was called it about her? 99. Oh, they did. About I don't think her? it was about her, oh. but it was a cool song. Okay. No, it's well, about her. David Poe providing the fun fact. Uh, you did not need the hint again, but Helen, what would that hint have been? She came right before Agent 100. <laughs> Thank you. A, a trailblazer, <laughs> if there ever were one. Nancy, you're three for three. Here's question number four. You do still have two hints available. Okay. Sometimes a sitcom second banana is so good, they can be a second banana on multiple sitcoms, like Bill Daly, who played the part on three different hit sitcoms in the 1960s, the 1970s, and 1980s. Mm -hmm. Name two of these shows. Okay, he was a second banana on I Dream of Jeannie and a mm -hmm. second banana on The Bob Newhart Show. Helen? That is correct. That is correct. One of your other topics, the Bob Newhart show. Yeah, I'm uh, relieved because if you'd asked me all three, I was, I yeah. was, I could not think of the third. Well, he played Major Healy on I Dream of Jeannie. He played Howard Borden, who you said was sort of the the, the lead the, character's kid, yeah. on the Bob Newhart show, and he played Dr. Larry Dykstra on Alf. Oh, which is, prob which is probably where I first saw him. Wow. All right, Nancy, you also have a chance to go five for five. Here is this question. Many second bananas become first bananas on their own show, and some become notable in a completely different field. Take Sheila Kuehl, who played Zelda on The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis, but now holds what position in Los Angeles politics? Hmm. Okay. Yes, I do know that. I, I want to make sure that I get it right, so I will, okay. I will enlist one of my um, hints. Helen, what is Nancy's first hint? She's part of the five-member governing body of the county of Los Angeles. So that wouldn't be a congressman. Um, a county supervisor? Helen? That is correct. Oh, that is correct. Nancy Giles is also five for five. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I feel the love. I, I, I'm, you I'm coming back. You're coming back. Uh, fun fact, Supervisor Kuehl served eight years in the California State Senate and six years in the California State Assembly. She was the first openly gay or lesbian person to be elected to the California legislature. All right, Nancy, you obviously did very well in that round, but now here is your expert level question that requires multiple answers. It is time for your cluster fact. 
we'll be bringing out an expert to assess your response. Nancy, sometimes a second banana has their own second banana, like how Samantha and Darren's daughter on Bewitched was given her own second banana on season six when her baby brother was born. For up to three points, what was the name of that young boy's character, what was the name of the girl, and who played her in over 100 episodes of Bewitched? So I want to make sure I understand the question. What was the name of uh, Samantha's daughter's brother? Mm-hmm. And then the second part I didn't quite understand. What, what was the name of that daughter? So the daughter's name was Tabitha. Mm-hmm. And the son's name was Adam. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and what, the third part? The third part is who played that daughter? Her name was, oh gosh, I think her name was Erin Murphy. Erin Murphy you're going to go with. Oh, is this one of the ones that I can get a hint? <laughs> no, nope, there are no hints, no Shoot, hints in the cluster. I know fact. her name was Erin. Erin Murphy, Erin Andrews, Erin... So many errands, I yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, Aaron. Mm, I'm going to change it to Aaron Andrews for some reason. Okay, are you sure? No, I'm not sure. That's why I asked you if I could oh, okay. ask for a hint. <laughs> <laughs> I know her first name was Aaron, but... Don't overthink it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to say Aaron Andrews. All right, you're going to stay with that. Yeah. All right, Helen is taking note of your answers. We have an expert on hand who can tell us for sure. Helen, who do we have tonight? Joining us tonight is an actor, TV host, writer, and autism advocate who played Tabitha <gasps> on Bewitched. Oh. It's Aaron Murphy. Oh, I was right. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, my goodness gracious. Hello, Aaron Murphy. Hello, Nancy, you had it right. <laughs> I know, I did for a sec. I just, I just second-guessed myself. I should have stuck with it. But I remember you the know Aaron. Yeah, it's probably my fault somehow, so please don't blame I, yourselves. It, I think it's your fault. It is JQ's okay. fault, yes. Wow. <laughs> I have to say on Nancy's behalf, I think mm-hmm. she should get a bonus point because David said that Super Tramp sang the song 99 and Toto sang the song 99. I knew I, I liked it too. But Aaron, you can you can confirm that it was about Agent 99 though. Um I can neither confirm nor deny that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Aaron, before you joined us, uh, David actually was talking about how he was a fan of Bewitched and that got him into magic and science. So, uh, an, a nice uh, fun coincidence as well. Your character in particular. Oh, thank you. Very cool. <laughs> uh, Aaron, we're going to talk about Bewitched in a bit. I know in addition to acting, you've been involved in lots of different enterprises over the years. What, what's your current focus been? Okay, well, because of the pandemic, I've been sure. doing a lot of voiceover. I set up a home recording studio and I've been looping and doing a ton of voiceover stuff. So it's, it's been good. My youngest son just graduated from high school. So even though I've had my toe in the business ever since Bewitched, I said I would get more back into it. And he graduated a few days ago. So Oh, so you're right Congrats. there. Right on. Like our previous expert, Mr. Chilvers, you also have made over 100 commercials. But as an actor, uh, did you have a specialty when you were working, uh, as a, especially as a child actor, doing commercials? Basically, I was the kid in the commercials. <laughs> okay, there, that's a good I, specialty to have. Yeah, I started very, very young. I did um, a Folgers coffee commercial as an infant. And then I did a commercial with Ronald Reagan. He was the spokesperson what? for Bora Team Detergent. So there's, oh, there's a video God. out there. I'm toddling around topless in a diaper with Ronald Reagan. All wow. Right. 
<laughs> Just make sure that that phrase never gets out on its own. Topless yeah. in a diaper with Ronald Reagan. That could be really troublesome. Yeah. And uh, you also uh, later in your life worked as a stunt double. I was surprised to learn. Tell us about the kinds of stunts you were doing and who you were doubling. Yeah, I was a stunt double for uh, Virginia Madsen and also Melissa Leo. They sucked me into doing Hulk Hogan's celebrity wrestling. So yeah. what? I'm a mom of six. I was wrestling with Dennis Rodman. Get what? Out of here. Whoa. Who won? Um, I always win. Yeah, there she is. She there of course she, is. she won. She's a mom of six. That is like yeah. that is some strength, man. That's incredible. You mentioned your mother of six. They're all boys. And uh, you've been very open about one of your sons having autism and uh, you've become an advocate for autism. Uh, tell us what that means and what that means to you. Basically, the numbers have increased so drastically since the time I was a child that now I think it's something like one in 17 boys is diagnosed with autism. It's something not to be ashamed of. There's not that much information even today. So I feel like if I'm going to be on the red carpet at an event, I'd rather talk about something of substance instead of what I'm wearing. Mm, so. Good for you. Kudos yeah. for that. Well, my next question was who are you wearing? So I'm going to move on to the next thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, let's talk about Bewitched. Uh, you were cast when you were two years old. As you mentioned, this was not your first gig. You were already an experienced actor at that point. Uh, what some people may not know is that you were not the only one to play Tabitha. Yeah, I, I actually started before I was two. There were several Tabithas before I became Tabitha. And then um, right at the start of the third season is when I started. So I was in the very first color episode of Bewitched on till the end. But I have a fraternal twin sister. So we were hired since we're twins, but we're fraternal and we really don't look very much alike at all. So, oh, wow. Yeah, so they would use my sister from the back or from a distance. Mm -hmm. And they also kind of got around the child labor laws where our producer Bill Asher would say, okay, it's time to bring bring Diane on set. And they would bring me off set and then they would bring me back on set. <laughs> <What>? Union busting. <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, it's wonderful to read how, how much of a positive experience being on Bewitch was for you. And I know that's oftentimes for a lot of child actors that's not the case. What do you think it was that made it so great for you, whereas maybe for others it wasn't something that they're so happy to, to speak about? It's almost a misconception that kid actors get a bad rap. I think you just hear more about the kid actors who have troubles. There are far more kid actors who've either gone on to stay in the business or transitioned to other careers. It's just not newsworthy. Right, right, right. That is so true. It's like, she's not on cocaine, boring. I know, yeah. isn't that a shame? It's like when it yeah. leads, it leads. So somebody yeah. that's had a great life like you, that doesn't get the attention it deserves. But it does now. I mean, I'm lucky that I've been in the business forever and I think by being positive and, and, you know, having a strong work ethic. It's why I'm still in the business. And I still work with the mm. same people that I've worked with my whole life. I keep getting called back in. So that's a good thing. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. Fantastic. What I found so interesting looking back on Bewitched, you know, in a lot of ways it's seen as a silly sitcom, but the show really took on some social issues of the day, especially racism and race relations. I recall that there was this special Christmas episode that focused on you and a new friend. Is that something you remember and remember the importance of? Absolutely. There was an episode and it was written by an English class in South Central Los Angeles. And the teacher came into the class and asked people if they'd done their homework. Asked the kids, did you do your homework? What, what did we read about? And no one had done their homework, but every single kid in the class had watched Bewitched the night before. So the teacher came up with the great idea to have the class write an episode of Bewitched. 
They wrote an episode, sent it into Bill Asher and Liz Montgomery, who loved the episode. So it was an episode called Sisters at Heart that focused on my character having a friend who was African-American and we wanted to be sisters. And I wish so hard that we would become sisters that I ended up with brown polka dots on my face and she had white polka dots on her face. And it was it was a beautiful episode. It was great. Yes. And it's 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 still it was Elizabeth Montgomery's favorite episode. We won a special governor's Emmy. And it's one of those things where I was in blackface. So mm. myself as a child was in blackface. And I've never heard one negative word from anyone about it, that it was so, the episode was so well-loved, and I'm really proud of that one. It's because it wasn't blackface in that sense. It was it was a very loving, uh, lovingly acted and lovingly written piece about bringing two different kinds of people that felt sisterly together. So that's why it won't ever come up that way. It's, you weren't, yeah, it wasn't shucking and jiving or any of that stuff. It was wonderful. Yeah, and it was such a fun one to film because since we had all the special effects, we we very rarely had an audience of people there, but we had the entire class of students. Oh. So they came on Monday for the table read and all the kids had director's chairs that said writer on the back. Oh. And they were there throughout the week and they had their hair and makeup done. And it was just, it was a very oh. Oh my God, that is so cool. I love this story. The backstory is better than anything. I love it. Amazing. All right, well, let's get to the reason that we brought you here as far as the game is concerned. You heard the question that we asked of Nancy. First, we wanted to know on Bewitch, what was the name of the baby brother that was the second banana to the daughter? Helen, what did Nancy say? Nancy said Adam. And Aaron? The correct answer is Adam. The correct answer is Adam. Very good. By the way, do you remember how did you feel about having your own second banana to play off of? Although I guess he was an infant for most of it. Well, I loved it because most of the episodes of Bewitched, there were no other kids there. So I loved the episodes where my character went to school or into, you know, a storybook. So it was fun. All right. Next, we wanted to know what was the name of that young daughter on Bewitched? Helen, what did Nancy Giles say? Nancy said, Tabitha. And Aaron? Nancy is correct, Tabitha. (laughs) Nancy is correct, very good. Have you met a bunch of Tabithas over the years who uh, tell you that they were named after your character? Yes, and and I will famously say that every Tabitha you meet, whether it's a cat or a stripper, is named after me. What an honor. What an honor indeed. And finally, What's the ratio yeah. of cats to strippers, I wonder? It's about 50-50. About 50-50. Okay, oh, great. Oh, man. And then finally, we wanted to know who played Tabitha on over 100 episodes of Bewitched. Helen, what did Nancy say? Well, Nancy started off by saying Aaron Murphy, and then she amended to say Aaron Andrews. And Aaron Murphy? Well, it's Aaron Murphy. <laughs> yeah, it is Aaron Murphy, and it's up to you. Do is you want... Aaron Andrews one of the Andrews sisters? No, I believe she's a she's a reporter. She's a sports reporter. I think had worked for ESPN or ABC for a long time. Right. Yeah. You know, you could give her the point, you, or you I could, could give her half, half a point. You yeah, know. Aaron, what do you think? I would give her the whole thing. She said it first. Wow! Very good. Congratulations. Nancy, you had a perfect game then, thanks Aww, to Aaron Murphy. Wow, I appreciate that so much. And I have to ask Aaron, what was what was it like working with Elizabeth Montgomery and Dick York especially? No shade against Dick Sargent, because he was good too, but that couple, they had a particular kind of chemistry and I always loved them. What was that experience like? It was wonderful. And I agree. I mean, I never want to say that I have a favorite Darren, because I love them both. But I... 
in watching it. I mean, they they had a close relationship and they loved each other. And I think mm-hmm. it showed on TV. So it, it was a special show. She's a magnificent actress, too. She went on to do some dramatic work that just blew my mind. I loved her independence. And I'm sure that's part of the things that seeing her and, and seeing that show helped shape me into doing my own thing and creating magic in a way, making things happen on your own. You know, I loved that. Absolutely. And I watched yeah. all the same shows you did, Nancy. Everything you See? said you watched. <laughs> you were you were playing along to the quiz. And yeah, I said well I said well. Karen Valentine. I was here. Yeah. <laughs> uh Aaron, it's been so wonderful to have you with us. If people want to find out more about you or your work, where can they do that? I'm everywhere. Just Google me. I'm on Instagram and Facebook and I mean my whole life is online. It's pretty easy to find. Excellent. Well, I'm so happy that we found you for this show. Thanks for joining us again. Aaron Murphy, everybody. Aaron, thank you. Bye. All right, Helen, what is our score as we go into the final round? Ooh, it is a tight game, Jay Keith. At the end of that round, David Pogue has nine points and Nancy Giles has eight points. What a comeback indeed. Now it is time for a final round we call Fast Facts. I'll read 10 statements and each contestant will answer with true or false. I'll start with David and alternate between each guest. Each correct answer is worth one point. Again, the answer to each statement is true or false. Here we begin. David, CBS Sunday Morning airs on NBC. False. Correct. (laughs) We're off to a ripping start. Nancy, CBS Sunday Morning airs on Sunday. True. Correct. David, Sunday is named after the sun. True. Correct. There's that science. Nancy, months that begin on Sunday always have a Friday the 13th. Uh, True. Correct. David, months that begin on Sunday always have a federal holiday. False. Correct. Nancy, a federal holiday can never be on a Sunday. False. Correct. Yep, Christmas, New Year's, those those can be. David, Sunday is the most common day for a democratic country's federal election. False. Incorrect. No, and more oh. than half more than half of the world. Nancy, Sunday is the most common day to be born. False. Correct. It's Tuesday. David, Sunday is the most common day to be murdered. False. Correct. That's Saturday. <laughs> Nancy, Sunday is the most popular day of the week to have sex. True. Correct. And finally, David, it's because nothing puts you in the mood like CBS Sunday morning. <laughs> True. Woohoo! <laughs> Sure. That's right. That's right. I I remember when they put that in their uh, opening theme when Charles Osgood was hosting. We're not going to count that last one. I do want to thank again Nancy Giles and David Pogue as Helen tabulates the final score. Helen, are you ready to announce the final score? Jay Keith, you won't believe it. It's a tie. Whoa. David Pogue has 13 points and Nancy Giles has 13 points. What a competition. Right Right, on. We are going to go to a tiebreaker to decide it. Here is how the tiebreaker works. The answer is a number. Whoever gets closer to the correct number wins. Now, we do not play it Price is Right style, so no guessing $1. (laughs) I will ask the question, ask you to think about it for a moment, and then blurt out the answers at the same time on the count of three. So don't answer right away. Here is your question. According to Amplify Media, as of April 2021, what percentage of all podcasts have produced at least 10 episodes? Again, what percentage of all the podcasts that exist have produced at least 10 episodes? All right. I will ask you to give us your answer on the count of three. One, two, three. 80%. Nancy says 80%. David says 10%. The correct answer is 36. 36%. That means David is closer. Congratulations, David. You are the facting champion on Go Fact Yourself. What will you do with your championship? 
going to go right off and edit my Wikipedia page. Add that. <laughs> wow. I thought you weren't supposed to edit your own Wikipedia page. I, I mean, hire someone to edit my Wikipedia page. There we go. Want to make sure you're cool with the Wiki community. Well, that sounds like a wonderful way to spend your afternoon. Uh, all right. We want to give everyone uh, on the show here a chance to promote whatever they might like. David, where can people find you and your work? Uh, my website is davidpogue.com. I'm Pogue on Twitter, just my last name. And here's a special Go Fact Yourself offer. Mm. Uh, if anyone winds up reading my book, How to Prepare for Climate Change, I can't be there to sign it for you in person, but I will mail you an autographed sticker, a book plate, if you just email me, pogue at me.com. My last name, P-O-G-U-E at me.com. And mention wow. that you heard it on Go Fact Yourself. Excellent. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we really appreciate it. David Pogue. Uh, Nancy Giles, where can people see you and your work? So let's see. You see me on CBS Sunday morning when I'm on there. You can listen to the Giles Files. That's on uh, iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. You can tweet me at, at Nancy Giles with a G NYC. And I'm on Twitter. I mean, what, what is the other thing I'm on? Oh, uh, uh, what's it called? Instagram, Instagram. Facebook. Yes, yes. Yeah. And Giles NY on Instagram and uh, the Giles Files Picks with an X also on Instagram. And hey, if you're a publisher, call me. <laughs> okay, I couldn't that, help it. That's how publishing works. We're so happy that you joined us, Nancy Giles. Ladies and gentlemen, you are so lucky because my hosting partner is Ms. Helen Hong. Helen, what do you got going on? You can check out uh, the YouTube channel that I have with my family called Old Korean Dad Stories on YouTube. Old Korean Dad Stories. And then you can follow me on the socials at Funny Helen Hong. Don't follow that other Helen Hong. She ain't funny. No, I'm the funny one. Indeed she is. She is funny. She is Helen. She is Hong. She is Helen Hong. Uh, and me, uh, watch The Hustler on ABC this summer. I uh, produced on that. You can also watch uh, 90 Day Fiance Love Games on Discovery Plus, which I also wrote. Uh, and on uh, Twitter, I'm at J underscore Keith and on Instagram at jkeith.net, all spelled out. That just leaves me to thank David Pogue, Nancy Giles, Colin Chilvers, and Aaron Murphy. Please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, all at GoFactorPod. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Update our wiki at GoFactor wiki.fandom.com and buy our t-shaped shirt at maxfunstore.com I'm J. Keith Van Stratton, good night Like what you hear? Come see us live someday, I think it's gonna happen It's free! Go to gofactorpod.com for our schedule and tickets and give us a 5 star review on Apple Podcasts like Dollface Freeze did He, she, or they said, I love this show and I've listened to every episode I love how the guests sometimes geek out about the experts they bring on, I sometimes geek out with them Thanks, Dollface Freeze. We sometimes geek out with them, too. Helen? Go Fact Yourself is a panel quiz program devised and produced by Jim Newman and J. Keith Van Stratton and comes to you via transcription from various homes across the country. Questions on Go Fact Yourself were compiled by the Trivia Industrial Complex. It is produced in collaboration with Maximum Fun. Our theme song and incidental music were written and performed by Jonathan Green. Maximum Fun's senior producer is Laura Swisher. Associate producer, engineer, editor, and overall swell person is Julian Burrell. Special thanks to Harlan of B. Harlan Bull Public Relations, Julia Rowley, David Gerald, Bert Dalton, Jim Doyle, Bill Inglot, Freddie Wong, Andy Zachs, Rob Cager, Sarah Rodenbaugh, Brandon J. Carr, Clint Tauscher, Mike Avellanos, Adam Needith, Dave Bianchi, Eric Tran, and Christine Velada. I've been Helen Hong! Let's go watch Second Bananas from the 1960s! Or eat them.
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.